Welcome back. You're listening to The Word. We are being joined by a very special guest. He's joined me on the show many times over the last four years. So many times I'm not even going to bother to introduce him. It is none other than the Mayor of Bristol, Marvin Rees. Good afternoon and welcome. Really good to have you back on the show. Happy 2020. Yeah, so how was your Christmas? <laughs> It was very nice. You actually get a chance to do, uh, you know, to take yeah. a break. Or... Took, I took my mum. Uh, my sister moved to Zurich some years oh, ago. Wow. So uh, my wife, three kids, and mum went to stay with Dion. So it, it was cosy. You it know? sounds like a song. My wife, my mum, my kids. Yeah. Well, <laughs> picture one bed cabin up in the Alps with five children and, mm. and, and five adults. That was that was a yeah. that was a regime of routine. It's always good to have you back. You know, we've we the first time we met you on uh, well, I did on on the word was pre mayor. Mm-hmm. Um, we were talking about St Paul's Carnival, and we've talked oh, yeah, about we did, yeah. They mm. the, George Ferguson was looking at um, well, he'd withdrawn some some funding, and uh, you were very passionate about making sure that Carnival kept going. So and why don't we kick back. off there? Yeah, I mean it's a nice place to start, isn't it? Because it's back and it's back with style. It's got a new executive director, Latoya McAllister Jones. Uh, what did you think of last year's Carnival? It was good. I wasn't there myself. I was away, unfortunately, oh, yes, uh, working. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I forgot. Rub it in. There. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Asher, the Asher was there though. Yeah, it this was Asher Craig, which is uh, great. Absolutely fantastic. Yeah. You know. Well, it's it's iconic. We've 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 uh, we've gone over it, haven't we? I mean, it's um, you know, from when I was a kid, before the health and safety was required, you know, running around, uh, jumping on the back and off the back of the floats yeah. as they went around trying to get seen. I can remember the year I managed to get myself on a TV clip. Did you? Yeah, I was on for about half a second, but you know, everyone's talking about it in Monday on Monday in school. Well, yeah. I was on TV yeah. and all that. Yeah. Um, those were the days, and you. You went over, did the floats, ran around uh, Grosvenor Road till you were absolutely exhausted, didn't have much money to buy drinks or so, and then went home, six o'clock, and I always have that memory of uh, walking across the Danny River, which we called the Danny, the feeder, uh, getting to uh, uh, Pennywell Road, and you could still hear the, hear the beat, Amazing, the, the vibration, yeah. and then going back to to home uh, to my house on Beaumont Street and yeah you just you can still hear still the music hear going on yeah. that's when I was a kid and you didn't stay over there late and all that yeah, type of stuff yeah I loved those days though where you could literally just dance until the sun came up and and okay it has had to change hasn't it and I get that and you know it, people are still criticising where it's going but the main thing is it's back and it's back to stay I hope yeah do you think it will yeah 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 absolutely I mean and, and over the time you know what we've really managed to do is to is to begin really investing in that cultural offer of Bristol so one is obviously Winning Channel 4 is huge for that in, in, in an investment into in the underwriting of Colston Hall and Old Vic or St. George's. But but having beginning to develop a coherent cultural strategy uh, for the city has been has just been you know um, you know of huge importance and recognizing the full role of Carnival. It's not just dance and the music. It's a huge injection to Bristol's economy. You know, and that the, the echoes out into people staying overnight. You know, local businesses. Well, I think year round as well. I know that there are plans to kind of make it more activities throughout the year, which would be great as well. Yeah, m- yeah. massively important. Yeah. So you know, yeah, it, it, it's here now, and 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 these things continue to exist if the city buys in, and that's what that's what we've done. You 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 hit on something actually I'm quite interested in um, as well. It's kind of like our nighttime economy. Um, how much do you think that is important to the city of Bristol? Oh, massively important. I mean, it's a it's a huge. I mean, it's, it's obviously a huge employer, but also it's tied up with the whole sense of place. It's no point focusing on daytime economy and after six seven o'clock areas are dead or dangerous. So actually, there's yes. a big piece of work going on around the nighttime economy. So Nicola Beach, Councillor Nicola Beach, and my cabinet lead for for planning. 
um, has been working a lot with Annabelle in, in the mayor's office as well, now in the city office. Um, and they've been convening um, a group uh, for, for around about a year now, I think, actually, with people who are on the really leading edge of nighttime economy. Marty Burgess has been... Uh, you know, on that group, I think she yeah. might be chairing it. The, the guys Great. from Motion have well, been she, involved in that they're group. They're going to know what they're doing. That's yeah. the main thing, is People Motion. with experience. So yeah. it's about appreciating that, you know, how do we create spaces? And I, uh, and what we're doing with that as well is that's feeding over into planning. So as we begin, you know, with all the cranes up in Bristol now, that's the city getting built. That's mm-hmm. us, you know, delivering real investment, real stuff, homes, office space um, in Bristol. But as we go through that physical development, how do we make sure that the places we build are... 24-7 friendly, right? They're safe yeah. uh, for young people, for women, for families to be out into the to the evening as well. And That's also it. so they're not affecting, uh, obviously we've seen so many venues and nightclubs and pubs and uh, closed down in the last few years because of new development. How do you control that? How do you make that work? How do you get the, the houses built, the offices built, and they yet still maintain these iconic venues that are needed to keep our industry going? Well, we've got the we, we've got the protections in for music venues now. And Kerry McCarthy, the MP, Bristol East MP, is an amazing MP for us in Bristol. Mm. She has been a, a real champion of that, that, making sure that when venues aren't there, suddenly when flats are put around them or units, people move in and they don't start complaining and get the venue closed down. So uh, we've brought that in yeah. um, to um, you know into Bristol to protect those venues because we see it. we see that you know that that ecology of of, of event spaces as essential to who we are that at one end and at the other end you know big arena size uh, conference size venues that we're bringing through in bristol well next question has to be then what is do we have an update on what is happening with the arena do we know yet if it's going to happen out at filton do we have any news on that whether the planning permission has been given to the filton site well they're putting it in for planning yeah? Yeah, and then it's up to the planning committee. Because that's a phenomenal project, what they're looking at. I actually got invited to go and have a look around. Yeah. I don't know what your views on it. I actually think it's amazing. I, I don't care whether it was in Bristol or on the edge of Bristol. I just think as long as we get it's one, I'm class. happy. It's going to be amazing. It's a world-class venue. It's, it's, gonna, it's, it's, one, it's one of the biggest three arenas in the country. Wow. Right? And when it comes through, it, that makes it globally significant. It's going to be amazing. Um, yeah. 17,000 capacity, latest technology. Yeah. Also, let me, uh, um, a benefit that people haven't often grappled with people talk, think about environmental impact so I, I was talking to them I said can you make this the most sustainable arena in the UK in terms of impact on environment they said there's a really straightforward way of making arenas more environmentally sustainable reducing the carbon footprint use a building that already exists you play this back right and this is again this is this the quality of debate in the city is sometimes not that great but you have to just stretch your thought a little bit if you use a building that already exists all that steel and all that concrete has already been generated it's the ultimate recycling if you go and build an arena from scratch and i've said financially jobs creation wise tax revenue financial risk temple line arena was a disastrous decision for the city you have to build that arena from scratch that means generating demand for thousands of tons of new steel and new concrete. Those are two of the filthiest industries on the planet. Now, it, you just Google how much CO2 is generated by every ton of steel. That's not even accounting for transporting mm. the steel and uh, the, the concrete to the site and then putting it together. My office did a little calculation, if I get the number right. In the demand for fresh steel alone, you're talking over about 6,500 tons of CO2. 
from the, from a city centre arena simply because it would have to be built from scratch rather than using an existing uh, building. There's no criteria on which the the, the Temple Island site uh, was you know was a better uh, location and, and 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 certainly on on environmental grounds. So what we have is an amazing opportunity. We got so much going on in the city. We got real momentum. Everywhere you look, you see cranes. Not only is it about the physical development, but our reputation. For example, I, we had a city gathering today. We had all the city leaders today. What did we talk about? We had Anton there talking about the work he's doing on street, street violence, you know, and taking kid, giving young people opportunities to get off the streets and go and work for him, you know, his cleaning business. We had the campaign on period poverty. You know, we talked about fostering um, and, and adoption. So the social stuff we're doing as well is right up there. Childcare uh, was right up there. So... The, f- the physical city is being developed, but those kind of important social outcomes around people are heart and cent- uh, are at the centre of what we're doing. I think it's an exciting time. But you touched on something that I feel like maybe we should talk about is you must deal with, and I know we spoke about it slightly off air, was with gossip and people saying things that maybe aren't true. And how do you deal with things like that? I mean, I, I ask almost in a selfish way because my son's having to deal with this at school. Mm. And I know you mentioned the same thing. And it's something we deal with all our lives, isn't it? Gossip. It's a funny thing. I mean, you can't prepare for being the mayor of a city in many ways. Well, also because they wasn't there for long. (laughs) It's a new job. So, yeah. But let me... It is interesting. So uh, the backdrop is, I say to my children, I, school was tough, right? I went to St. George School. Stuff was, and many people who went there will remember it. Was a, it was a tough place to be. And I've often said, I wish I knew then what I know now. And when all the gossip is going on and people are talking, making stuff up and so forth, I just would have ignored it as a teenager now if I had the confidence and so forth. And I do now. I have that confidence as an adult. And I've said to my children, so if someone wants to say something, right? And they say, yeah. And I say, is it true? And they say, no. I say, why are you engaged with it then? Why are you even bother about it? And, and so there's a piece of me that has to bring that attitude into being mayor. But can you ignore things, though? Well, you you cannot indulge. So I call it, it's like a vortex of conflict, confusion and conspiracy. <laughs> it's like, um, so you can watch it going on. And in many ways, you can kind of decide not to engage with it. And I get this. Like someone right. someone goes into the council and says... Marvin's a catastrophe, he hates democracy and is like Vladimir Putin or is like should be running North Korea. This happens all the time. Then reporters just go and say, Mayor accused of being like Vladimir Putin in North Korea. And then they come to me and say, what are you going to say about that? The problem is then if I say something back, then the next line is yeah. Mayor hits back yeah. and I'm not giving that story. So yeah. we've kind of like almost given up on the ability to get any quality in, in those. So you, you can ignore it by not getting involved. I think what dismays me about it is a poor quality public debate robs the general population of a real opportunity to to really engage in democratic processes. Because what they get do is they get sucked into the vortex, like I said, of conflict, confusion and conspiracy. You may recall last year that there was a so-called expose on institutionalised racism at at Bristol City Council. And this is obviously going back years. And yet now we have a black mayor. It almost felt like you were being held accountable for something that's been going on for hundreds of years there is a perversity and myself and asha talked a lot about this you know racism in old organization is not story racism in old organization black leaders oh and now we got the now we got the juxtaposition that would generate a click so you're not saying that we shouldn't be talking about it but we just recognize you know sometimes it's a little bit important to have some emotional intelligence some intellectual intelligence to recognize these dynamics and also that just become because a black person takes a position leadership does not mean that they click their fingers and get instantaneous changes in the 
whole global network of injustice. You know, it doesn't happen like that. Yeah, my, like I said, my, my frustration is uh, that I think there is a genuine global challenge around planetary destruction in the way we develop the economy and the impact yeah. on climate and ecology and ongoing inequality and social injustice. What I have often said to some people, if you consume the airwaves with a superficial debate that does not actually get at what the real drivers are and just deal in symbols, you're strengthening those those structures of planetary destruction and global injustice because you're letting the real drivers off the hook because you're taking everyone's attention away. And that's what I have less patience for. So whatever goes on about me and what people want to say, that's fine. But what I have less patience for are people that I think create the conditions in which they may get some emotional satisfaction from being very angry and loud, but actually what they're doing is they're diverting people's efforts away uh, from the real solutions uh, to those challenges. I'm very interested in this because in this era of fake news and, you know, our, our media has such a huge responsibility on the way, you know, it affects our, the citizens of this country as well. How can we make this better? How can we be have more trust in our media? How can we make that happen? Well, I've got to be careful on this front because the last time I talked about in the media, I ended up with a, a whole a whole class of people descending on me. So, uh, <laughs> interestingly, well, this is the power of the from, press, isn't it? You know, you, well, it, apparently, I'm the one with all the power because I'm an elected politician. I've no right to uh, ask questions about the media, and and and, you know, and I and I, I'm warned constantly. I'm warned. Don't don't you know? Don't try and so I, I'm. I'm probably going across the line here now that I'm warned constantly, don't, because you get slapped back, you know. And, and I'll but be true. But isn't it some kind of form of bullying, though, that you're having to deal with? Oh, you said that, not me. But I would just say that, you know, I think there's a very superficial understanding of what power is. I had this conversation this morning with someone. If you just define power merely as elected office, again, uh, of what goes on in, in an electoral political system, again, you're robbing people of the, uh, of the opportunity to engage in power. African-Americans coming out of the 1960s sought political office, and a lot of them got elected, right? African-Americans became mayors. But then what would happen, I'm not saying it's happened here, but the business community would turn up and say, right, you're African-American, you got elected, you want to do civil rights, fantastic. But if you do the wrong thing, we're going to take our factory to another city. So your choice is make your, make your agenda less radical, right? Or face big unemployment. Right? Just getting elected is not in itself a blanket pathway to, to power. And as I had to remind someone today, I'm still a black man. You know, yes, I am, I am the mayor of Bristol, but is the suggestion is that I am no longer subject to overt and covert racism. You know? And, and is, is the suggestion that I'm not impacted by the experiences of my, my black and my working-class family in their position on the lower rungs of you know, the, the hierarchy in this country? Uh, the, one of my concerns is there is just no... Well, this is the first... Spe- these are the only spaces you can have these conversations in the media in any meaningful way without people throwing their toys out of pram, getting all sensitive about it. You're just talking about what is real politics. Exactly. And it involves issue of race, class, gender. It's not just a symbolism of political office. Let's take it away a little bit and talk about family. Yeah. So you've got something here you'd like me to play. Yeah, this is this is by my brother, Martin Walker, surplus. And I'm sure there'll be lots of people out there who know um, he said my brother is not well. He, um, he, there was... Uh, he tried to take his life and I'm there sorry. were consequences of that. And I just want to honour mine. Uh, it's just an incredible person, uh, an incredible talent. That I don't think I was necessarily appreciated how loved he was. You yeah. know, just how proud I, I, 
I, I am and remain of him. And this is the track he's got at the top of his Facebook page, Surplus. So we're going in on him, yeah? Yeah. I'm Bushy Airways. So man. Pick the Central Spills family. Oh my days. Everybody got a joke real center, they might end up behind airfield fence as a consequence of your post intent, but you could get wrapped up for walking. Tempt, when a man was a broke violence on a mic, it sounds like you're hawking. Flem, drag one like a rot, I rank your man, them up, no for forking. And jam a straight one, ten if we're talking. Bench, pound for pound, and you're joking. Pence, round for round, man, I'm a shooting. Enter for ground to pound, man, they're joking. Bench, not really gonna walking when since them things result to boring. Friends, not really gonna get ting, matting, acting, get out the urine. End, I'm a rap king without the touring. Bench, scale one to eight, I'm more than. Lyrically wipe the flow with them And if I make an artist hide the drawing pens Like Gordon Benz Rock out with the wash out with my devouring And get them all them gems Too dark make a dog art kick off recording Yo, state of emergency It's emergency stay Us man a move with such urgency That we deserve to be great Do we get to be burning the fake I'm a flinging them birds in your face I'm a volatile Molotov gonna burn the world Bro, holocaust in your face They get them a how the does it taste When I'm a man running up in the place With a mixtape When I make little mistake breaks And it's such a Disgrace and I'm in a race and you're taking a piss, mate. And I know you won't forget this day straight. I gotta pay for the pay for the you better. Yo, yo, team, give me a little time and a rhyme and I might ride between the words and mold. It's cold on the road and I'm old and alone and I don't know my worth no more. What's pride in my untied life and a good place for either nerd and soul. No time. You know what? I can actually, I'm, I'm seeing the video um, of this. We're playing it off Facebook so the MP3 quality isn't digital, but it, it's amazing. His rapping skills, Marvin, are out of this world. It's phenomenal. Absolutely yeah. I'll tell you what, I was on, it was years ago. I was on Stapleton Road with my sister and my mum and uh, it was when Martin first started <laughs> rapping. And, I, and, and it was a cassette, actually. I think it was an old cassette. And um, a Walkman or whatever. And uh, we said, oh, yeah, I started rapping. And he gave my sister the headphones. My sister went, whoa. And then he, he gave me the headphones. I was listening to it. I was like, Martin, is that you? Is that you? I said, this is this is incredible, yeah. you know, absolutely. And he's known. I mean, people in Bristol will know Surplus as as uh, an incredible artist. And I've listened to that obviously for many reasons over the last uh, months. I, I I constantly go back and listen to it and just think about him. Fair play. Mm. On that note, well, sympathies basically. I know how hard that must be to deal with, and dealing with your job, and and then having to deal with something like that, you know. Well, something so personal going on, and yet you're probably expected to go out the next day and deal with whatever it is you've got that day. You well, know, I, whether it's having lunch with Bristol Black Carers or yeah. you know, it, how do you how do you juggle things like that? Oh, you just do, you just you just do life, don't you? But I, I haven't talked about this publicly um, for obvious reasons. But then my 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 other brothers, there's, seven, there's eight of us all together. So my other brothers and sisters have. Uh, have been um, open online so it's not um, so yeah but this is the first time I've spoken um, in media but it's just to say look this this can be close to anyone you know there's no there's no distant land that anyone can go to where members of your family won't be undergoing anguish uh, depression and so forth and so um, yeah just you know take the time and uh, look out and if, if if people are in those situations you know, it's worth taking a stop and a think and not just listening to the voices in your head sometimes, but, you know, do check in and speak to people because you might find that uh, people really value you and love you and, and perhaps you um, weren't as aware, uh, you know, it's as so you should hard. have been. Yeah, it is so hard. Do you think, I mean, mental health, anxiety, 
people uh, panic attacks you know, they seem so much more prevalent these days uh, and anxiety within young people do you think that is the case or we're just becoming more aware of it? I suspect it is actually there are a number of dynamics going on in the pace of society, pace of change lack of lack of community increased individualism, yeah. consumer based society that doesn't really give you the base the, you know, strong basis for identity and you know, encourages people to buy, buy, buy the advent of social media, a friend of mine is a GP and the growing numbers of people approaching her having had a, a background with you know, having issues on social media. But this is what she said. There's a technical thing for this as well, right? One is the obvious everyday pressure of looking at people displaying the best of their life, right? their lives. That's not an accurate reflection of who we are. Everyone's got their ups and downs and people feeling pressure to meet that, that they are somehow missing out or underperforming or failing in, in life. But the other is quite interesting that she pointed out, again, as a GP, that, that social media has taken over some of our personal emotional development. And rather than the old sources of building personal resilience that used to exist in overcoming failure, falling out of trees and forming friendships face to face, people are now getting their social resilience from being liked or retweeted or reposted. And that's a totally false uh, source of of identity and worth and so it's really artificial and that leaves us incredibly uh, vulnerable to the opinions of other people and it's so immediate it's so you know it, it's right there and that, that's one of the i think it's one of these it's a silent emergency actually I, I and i don't know how kids manage i mean yeah. i feel you know social media goes on and i'm an adult so i can dismiss it and say that's nonsense and and drop facebook or drop twitter for you know weeks on end mm. if you're 15 16 you ain't got that strength and that resilience yet and it's all consuming. Can I just say something as well? This again, the kind of activism in the city, the kind of political dialogue that is a constant diatribe of conflict, conspiracy, negativity, and nonsense. It's not just about the impact it has on adults. You are setting a standard for young people in Bristol. They enter into the world of Twitter and they think that's the way I need to. Need to I need to act. Yeah. I mean, I could just yeah. read out tweets on here, you know. You know what people say. These are sometimes, I guess, they're fifty-five-year-old men sitting home in their underpants late at night, thinking about what mean thing they can write. You've had death threats. I mean, it's yeah, not acceptable, is it? Yeah, it's just, yeah. it's, it. I mean, how do we control things like that? It isn't right. What if your kids were old enough to have read that? You know, seen that? It's, well, my kids saw it because it was did. outside my of house. Of course, they're on the pavement. But, yeah, but, awful, awful. Yeah, that and that wasn't ideal. But I'm because the point I was making is about. Adults engaging in that kind of behavior on social media, and I look at some of their profiles. Sometimes every now and again, I'll look and click, and you see these are people. They've got their they've got their employers in their profile. They've got their businesses in their profile. They've got pictures of their family and their stuff. You're like, really? Did you just leave all that and then come just you could write ten words just to be nasty? But also, you're setting a standard. You are building a culture into the way we do social media in Bristol, yeah. and it and it teaches young people that that's the way you should behave. People will do what you do, not what you say particularly if the two are inconsistent. Um, and I think that's almost unforgivable. There's so much I want to talk to you about. I could talk about this all day. In particular, I wanted to look back a little bit over 2019, some of the achievements that you've had. I would like to know, I know what I think, but I'd like to know what you think the single most important issue is in Bristol at the moment, in your opinion. It's housing. Look, we've yeah. got 12,000 people on the housing waiting list. We've got yeah. 600 families approaching 600 households, I should say, in temporary accommodation. Yeah. In fact, we voted at the city gathering today that to make that a city priority for 2020. You know, And then we got, obviously, people uh, rough sleeping. The population is going to grow by 100,000 near on over the next 25 years. So that crisis, In Bristol? Yeah. yeah. So wow. that crisis ain't going anywhere. No. It's going to get worse. 
So we have to deliver homes. But the, yeah. so, and a home is a basis for health, employment, education, family stability, community engagement, solid communities, resilience, and so forth, right? But then there's another spillover to that that I've said to some of the some environmental activists as well. The kind of homes we build and well, where we put them will be amongst the biggest determinants of our carbon footprint going into the future. And I, you know, so campaign symbols are one thing, but again, for Western Harbour, for example, you know, Cumberland Basin housing, if we don't build homes there, right, we've got to build them somewhere. The further away you build them from the middle of the city, the bigger the carbon price you'll pay for. Got to build centrally. Yeah. You, you know, that's the, that's, that's the principles, right? You, as much as possible, build in the middle of a city and you've got to have a little bit of height in there. I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about destroying the skyline with skyscrapers, but the denser you build, the lower the carbon price the planet will pay for your, uh, for your housing. So both on um, uh, social, economic equality, and actually even if I talk about democracy, giving people a home so they're not just worrying about the crisis of tomorrow, gives them a chance to engage in democratic processes. Um, and for the planet, housing is the issue. So how many houses were built in 2019? Do you know that figure? I should have perhaps warned you. You should have so, warned me yeah, yeah, that figure. Yeah. I've always focused on the 2020, but we're, we're, right. you know, we're building... Over, Tell over us that. what we can expect then, yeah. Uh, well, this year, we, we committed to building 2,000 homes uh, in 2020. Um, at least 800 of those affordable, and we just checked in on the numbers but every day. You did at least that last year as well. I yeah, know, we, I did were, look at the figures. They were pretty impressive. Well, look at the cranes up. There's yeah. lots of houses. Yeah. There's lots of buildings yeah. going up on the edge of Castle Park. There's, you know, um, I was in some homes just a few weeks ago up in St. Anne's. We took, you know, an old Brownfield site. Through, and I met, the two, I met three families that moved in there. Yeah, Alderman's more. 133 yeah. homes, 53 council houses among yeah. it. So uh, at the top of Whitehall Road, brand new homes built. And then I drove past them. This I went to visit them when they were just opening in November 18. I went past them over Christmas and there was someone with a sign up saying Santa visited here. I mean, these are these are lives now in these places. Yeah, right? no, it's great. But actually, I would say, if I can just say, you can go online. I made seven big pledges in 2016, right? Build 2,000 new homes a year, at least by 2020, 800 affordable. Work experience and apprenticeships for young people. Mm-hmm. Would stop unwanted expansions of RPZs. Keep all our children's centres open. Increase school places. We're building three primary schools. We kept all our children's centres open. We didn't expand RPZs that weren't wanted. We set up the works, delivered about 3,500 work experiences to Bristol children. Put Bristol on course to be run on entirely by clean energy. We got the billion pound LEAP programme coming uh, through and I said I'd lead a European captive culture bid which we couldn't do because we went through Brexit uh, but we did win Channel 4 I'm yeah. just saying all my seven pledges we delivered and 2020 could be the end of your mail uh, time how oh. do you feel about that? Thanks for the optimism well no I mean yeah, how, <laughs> how do you feel? What, what's going to happen? Is well, there... people, have to, people have to make their choices I, I mean, mean there's now campaigns saying that we don't need a mayor of the city you know the Conservatives wanted a mayor now that we've got one they've changed their minds oh, you, um, to... you know so, so How to, do you benefit our city? So you have to, well, what was the track record of Bristol getting things done in the past? <laughs> now we've got the cranes up. We've delivered on all these processes. I would say also, I mean, the way the, the way Bristol used to select its political leader was like this: whichever party had the most number of councillors would then get to choose the political leader of the council. Right. So say you say you had thirty councillors, right, and you had the biggest number. Those thirty councillors would go into a room. And then amongst them, they would vote. They might vote 17-13 for one of their members to become the leader. That person then becomes the leader of the council. That's, that's right. 30 people in a room based on 17 yeah. votes. So this, you know, so the, and then probably most people wouldn't even know who it was. 
So if I asked you who's failed historically to deliver on housing, who's failed to deliver on transport for Bristol, who failed to bring forward new secondary schools? Yeah, that going back eight years ago, we wouldn't have had a You clue. wouldn't know, no. but you know who I am. Yeah. Yeah. So th- the name is there, but also the voting population get a chance to choose directly rather than 30 or so people disappearing into a dark room in a council and then coming out with the person they want to lead. I think that's an important consideration. It is, it is. When you think that the first mayor, uh, George Ferguson, is, I think only 5,000 people got out and voted and he got in. And with your election, I think you won by something like 70,000. Well, 70,000 voted for me. 70,000 voted. So that's phenomenal. So we're looking forward to the next election. I'm sure it's going to go well. I got a quick question from a listener. David Groves, it's more of an idea that he has. He wanted me to put to you. Yeah, happy Um, for ideas. David Groves, an idea I have with regard to homeless people, instead of giving them money, the council could perhaps print vouchers that the general public then are taken to the homeless shelter in exchange for personal hygiene vouchers or a meal voucher. I see what he's saying. So instead of giving money, yeah. so print vouchers. There is, there is something about that. There is some complexity in that, that undoubtedly the vouchers themselves would become currency. Yeah, anyway, and probably would end up being traded. Okay, yeah? yeah, just like... Well, it happens in prison, cigarettes. And yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not that I've been to prison, but you know, you get that image of you know other other things become the currency. So like milk vouchers. But we, I, I just want to assure him that we've done, we've been really working hard on on rough sleeping. So one is we got to build houses and take care of people in the private rental sector as we've been doing. But also we have actually been pulling together the whole network, of the, all the most of the organisations working with rough sleepers in Bristol to try and get some better coordination and common understanding amongst them. Um, yeah. There is a little bit of a challenge that groups turn up and start going out and feeding people without any reference to what is already going on. And you end up with oversupply, competition, duplication, and it doesn't always best benefit people. And what we've really been encouraging people to do is to support the professional organizations directly. Because when they intervene, it's, you know, a rough sleeper might not just be about bricks and mortar. It might be about addictions, mental health, criminal justice record, estrangement from family. And actually professionals could begin to come in and support the journey of restoration not just maintenance um, on the street, which is important. I really wanted to ask you a quick, few quick questions about Clean Air plus Channel 4. Sure. We haven't heard, as in the public, we haven't heard much about Channel 4. We had the big hoo-ha, they were coming. What's happening? What can They're we expect now? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We, so we had the city gathering today um, in City Hall. Channel 4 were there talking about their future. So... They're here. Their offices are in Finzel's Reach. They're having a bit of a launch. They didn't do a big formal launch before Christmas. They were basically just getting their feet under the table, getting their office furniture in place and just equipping themselves. But it's really launching this month. And what we will see uh, is a couple of things. One is there's a commissioner here now. Uh, Sasha is is head of the hub as well. Yeah, he's been on the word, in fact. Well, actually, let's just make it real. One of the reasons, one of the big sales to Channel 4 was when we brought them to Ajima and showed the authenticity of our connection to that grassroots creativity and, and media community and looking at those pathways from Ojima, uh, No West Media uh, Centre as gateways in from people yeah. from a wider range so. of backgrounds. Yeah. So they're going to be uh, commissioning obviously, a lot more local Bristol-based and Cardiff-based companies, but also we are looking for that diversity of talent. Yeah, well, I, I hope so. I really do. I look forward to seeing what happens in the future. Clean air is a massive issue at the moment. Environmental issues are huge. I'd like to know, if you can, briefly, before you got to run off, can you just tell me a little bit more about the clean air proposal and what's happening? You know, take it that I'm an alien and I don't know much about it. Just There are streets in Bristol that are not compliant, about nine streets or so, not compliant with the standards required for clean air, dangerous levels. I mean, So why don't we just ban cars? Is that just unrealistic? I mean, it, you know, I would. I'd just say, right, no cars in the city centre. 
Yeah, you can't do that. It's taxi drivers, okay, uh, so care what, workers, What about nurses, if you doctors, had workers businesses. and care workers and emergency services, but anybody else? Well, that would, that would be a major hit. That would have other implications for people accessing work. They might work on one side of the city and have to get to the other. But we, you know, our requirement, the legal requirement, so there's, another, there's a couple of things. We need to do this because it's the right thing to do. But we also need to do it because there's a legal requirement on us to do it. And that's what people need to understand. Yeah. We're under threat of legal action because government came under threat of legal action and then rolled it downhill onto local authorities. You've got to remember there's a context to that. Right? Yeah, yeah. The national government came under pressure. They, you know, look for a scapegoat and try to me. So we were constantly pointing out we will take action on clean air, but you need to take account of the impact on business and uh, hospital. For example, BRI would come within the clean air zone. So how do you talk about patient access to the hospital if you can't get your car there and so forth? We have to think about those things. So, But got, I guess if we make public transport, then we don't need to drive. Yeah, my nan couldn't use public transport. She couldn't get out of bed. And, and the, the best way of my nan getting around to the, you know, to the end was, was a private car or taxi. Right. She couldn't, do, she couldn't use the buses. So I'm not saying we are transitioning. We are building the city in a way that will transition away from private cars. That's why we're bringing the bus deal through, which would include bus prioritisation. Um, and we're building the mass transit system, you know, the underground that we're bringing through with plans as well. But you Will got that happen? Do you see that? Yeah. I mean, that seems I, like I, a I huge project. It is a huge project. Yeah. But so was the London underground when it first yeah. talked about it. So it was a suspension bridge. So it was visiting the moon. <laughs> <laughs> this is Bristol. This is a modern city. Yeah. I mean, this kind of culture here that it couldn't happen here is nonsense. We've had the feasibility study done. Engineering-wise, you could build tunnels anywhere if you can afford it. And then it's about passenger numbers. Would the passenger numbers justify the investment to build it? And our passenger numbers would, uh, because we have a uh, you know four and a half million, you know uh, four sixty people in the city boundaries going up to five fifty or so in the next twenty five years, and then you know about one point one one point two million people in the wider um, catchment area. So where would it work? Where would it operate? Well, there are four routes being looked at, pre-planned at the moment. From they all start at Temple Meads. One goes out to Cribs and Aztec West. Yeah, they goes out to Lyde Green and Emerson's Green. Um, Hitsgate Roundabout, which is the roundabout, the Cape roundabout, yeah. and the other to the airport. And they give us, you know, between them, they give us the passion numbers. Ironically, for a debate for another time, this, the, the airport gives you the banker numbers, which makes it that unlocks the financial case for the. Well, it's not. It's not the definitive case, but obviously the bigger the passenger numbers, the stronger the financial case for it. Perhaps we should just quickly um, finish on the airport. What about, do we really want another terminal? Thank you, you for know. thank you for giving <laughs> me the airport to finish on. With, <laughs> like, how long have I got? Like two as minutes? As long as you need, as long as you need. The, the, look, the issue is, there's a big, let me just get rid of a couple of things out of the way. First of all, I'm, I'm all for, this is about flights. And, and, and there's been some misunderstanding, some deliberate conspiracy put out there. I'm not for increasing numbers of people flying. I want less. Right? I'm not in favour of uh, you know, airport expansion on the blanket. What I'm saying is there is a risk. And the, 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 the question we need to ask is, what are the consequences for the planet? What risks come into play if you do not expand Bristol as a regional airport and the number of people flying over the coming five years increases? Now, you may say the number of people flying can't go up. Well, great. But I think they will. Right. Boris Johnson's prime minister, Trump's president, the global population is growing. It's increasingly urban and we have global migration at levels the world has never, ever seen before. Uh I think people are going to move. If they go up and you've not expanded Bristol as a regional airport, I think and this is there are a number of risks that become real. One is you lock in the over seven million journeys 
that go up to southeast airports from the southwest of right. South Wales, and yeah. that has a carbon impact. Yeah. And you lock in the increase in numbers of people that fly, drive to the southeast. So I'm saying let's not get involved in some vortex of this is evil. This is my workings. I'm mm. happy to change uh, what I think, and it is what I think because it's not a Bristol decision, by the way. It's a North Somerset decision. I'm happy to change what I think if we can look at different evidence. And this is what we need, isn't it? And this is what the public needs. You need the evidence. You compare the carbon footprint with people going to the airports in the southeast or having another terminal yeah. here, and, and you give it to them. That's what the public need and want. And here's the other risk. Airport capacity is a national question. It's not a local or a regional question. It's like a balloon with air in it. If I squeeze it here, you get the air somewhere else. Mm-hmm. The southeast airports are going to reach capacity by 2025. So the national government are looking for capacity. If you're going to take capacity, Bristol's runway is at 50%. Heathrow is at 99%. You increase capacity at Heathrow with another runway at Bristol by processing more people. So I'm saying that's a risk. I'm not saying I'm in favour of it. I'm saying how do you minimise the harm from an inevitable growth in the number of people flying that's going to come? I don't want the increase in numbers of people flying. We have, we, I oppose the, the, the third runway at Heathrow. We got in touch with Sadiq. We checked in with him, told him we we're going to do it. We're opposing the third runway. But I think that you make the third runway more likely if you do not increase regional capacity yeah. and government start looking to the southeast. And the other is you end up with air congestion. Four stacks around Heathrow alone while planes circle trying to get out of the air because there's no, no runway space. It's thousands of tons of CO2. It's not a romantic position, but I'm saying, how do but we minimise exactly the harm of the world as the way it's yeah. going to be? I ask you, Miranda, just to be aware on social media. You've heard I've tried to work this out. I'm talking about how we're thinking about it. You'll see the madness that goes on on Twitter now. I want to kill all the rabbits and so forth. I'm not saying that. I wish fewer people would be flying. I do not think that campaign is going to be successful. So in light of that, I'm saying, how do we minimise the harm? But my, my suggestion is, if, if your bet is that the number of people flying is going to go down, so you, do, so you don't do anything, and it goes up, you've just locked in the worst possible consequences that increase the numbers of people flying for the planet. And that is a huge bet uh, to make. And I don't think that's people have really grappled with that. Can Marvin. we finish on something other than the airport? I don't know, I don't Absolutely. <laughs> what would you like to finish on? Let me have a look and see if we've gone through all the questions. I mean, you've done you've done. How the about most period of... poverty? Oh, period poverty. <laughs> oh, I mean, that's Helena Godwin, isn't Helen it? Godwin, Helen Godwin. Helen Godwin. Fantastic. Know, we put an appeal out last year at the City Gathering, made it a priority that that no woman in Bristol should or girl should be experiencing period poverty, can't afford to... Uh, get a sanitary project. Loads of companies came forward. Well, it's shocking forward. though, isn't it? The Hargreaves. cost of it is outrageous. Yeah. outrageous. We've got three products now going around the city. Hargreaves, Lansdowne, Monks, Burgess Salmon have been amazing partners. The sports clubs, Bristol Sport, Bristol Road, become distribution points. Schools have got boxes with products that any girl or woman could go and get. So if somebody wants to know a little bit more information, if they're listening, go out, how can I get access to this? Go and look up Period Friendly Bristol online and okay. you can find out how to make a contribution. Or, or go and collect products. Being copied by in Los Angeles now. They've been in touch. Really? They want to replicate Bristol's programme in LA. That's fantastic. Marvin Reese, thank you so much for coming in. Happy 2020. Thank you.